You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. We are going to finish up uh, from the text of 2 Timothy today. We've been walking all the way through this since we started the Life on Fire series. And so if you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 9. But as you're opening your Bible or getting it ready on your mobile device, I want to just welcome you here today. I want to welcome uh, our internationals. We've got people who are from other countries uh, over there, over here, a couple other places, spending some time this summer with other families. And uh, so you give them a warm welcome. It's great to have them here and with us today. And if you're here from any nation, tribe, language, or tongue, we're glad you're here because Elk Grove is an incredibly diverse place, and we love that. We think the church is the greatest place where people from all nations and tribes and languages can come together and understand the Word of God, our Creator, and worship Him uh, for who He is. And that's just a great experience. I want to let you know about a great experience I had last night that did a wedding for a uh, gal who grew up in our church. Her family has been here, and she grew up in our church, and, and so we did. It was, yes, it was 108 degrees. It was an outdoor wedding in Wilton, and uh, fortunately, it was in the shade. There was enough shade, but it was hot. But I got to tell you, there's this moment that happens in weddings. Maybe you've gone to weddings, or you've been to weddings, or you have attended a wedding, or you've given a, a daughter away in a wedding. And there's this moment where the dad, he walks the bride down to the front, and the pastor says, who gives this woman to this man? And the dad usually says, either I do or her mother and I. And then uh, the, the groom comes and gets the bride, and then the dad just like is awkward, like, they go sit down, right? And there's this weird moment where it's like, I, I guess that was it. I guess I'm done. But, but you need to know that in that moment, you may have been attending the wedding or watching it, but what you didn't realize is that was an epic moment. Something incredible happened in that moment, and maybe you just missed it. Because truly, in that moment, the bride goes from under the covering, the protection, the instruction, the care of her parents And it's transferred. That umbrella of protection is now put over the groom. She now comes under the protection, the care, the partnership, the marriage relationship of her husband. And this amazing moment happens. And it's almost like you might have been at a wedding and seen it, but you didn't realize just how epic it is. We have other epic moments in our lives when we watch people, and maybe they're people that you've known, a relative, someone else, but as they've walked the progression of death, Death happens a lot of ways. Sometimes death happens in an instant. It's an accident. It's a massive health crisis, maybe a heart attack or an aneurysm. And and, and we all have lost people who just, it was unexpected. It might have been a car accident or something. It just was so unexpected. And on the other side, we've watched relatives or family members or other people who have walked that long, slow battle with death that their body isn't going to win. And we have to ask the question, like, what, what happened? There is an epic moment when you and I leave this body and we go into the afterlife. Our body is dead, our body dies, but our soul remains alive for eternity. The question is, where will you and I spend eternity? And there's this epic moment that happens. And sometimes you've just watched people walk through that and you have not realized what actually happens when that progress is slow toward death. What do you actually think about when you're on your deathbed. Well, listen, here's why you need this sermon. Too many people go to the grave with huge regrets and overwhelming bitterness and frayed relationships. 
but I believe it's entirely possible to live intentionally now to maximize the life that you have left. And what I want to say is not the life you've lived, not the work you've done, but from this day forward, it is entirely possible to maximize the life that you have left, to fan into flame, as Paul has talked about, the gift that God has given you, to leverage it for his kingdom for now till the time when your body is done. It's entirely possible to live for what is truly important. What could your remaining years look like if you would fan into flame that gift and live a life on fire? I believe it's entirely possible for us to do it, and I believe that God's got you here today to give you the end in sight so that you can live with intentionality right now. So Paul is writing to Timothy. He's writing from jail. He is, knows he's going to be murdered very shortly. He doesn't know how long, but he can see it coming. I don't have long to live. This is the last part of the New Testament that Paul writes. It's the last thing he writes, and we're at the end of that last book, that final book. And we're going to look at these words, and typically when you look at these words that Paul writes, you kind of skip over all these because you get to the end of like what you think is the meat, all the instructions and stuff, And you get to the end, he's like, well, say hi to this person and be sure to give greetings to that. These people send greetings and do this and do that. And you're kind of like, you just want to get past it, right? Like, all right, let me move on to the next book. Let me move. I don't know that there's much here at the end of the book. But if we understand the context of Paul's life, that this is it. He's actually training us for some of the things as he reflects back on life. As he is looking at life, he's actually training us for the kind of things that you and I unless you have a massive accident, but that you and I will actually think about on our deathbed. If you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 9. The first thing you were taking notes today that you're going to think about on your deathbed is you're going to think about disappointments and successes in people. You're going to think back to your relationships, and you'll be on your deathbed, and you'll be like, which ones were great relationships? Which ones came together? Which ones were successful in people? And who were the people in my life that actually disappointed me? And so Paul begins to write. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. He says, do your best to come to me quickly. Obviously quickly because his time is short. He says, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. By the way, that's Luke who wrote both the book of Luke in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And so, by the way, Luke, just side note, Luke actually wrote more scripture than Paul did. If you look at the length of the letters he wrote, it's actually more than all of Paul's writing. So Luke is hanging out with Paul. These two authors are together, right? So Luke is there with me. He says this, though, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. All right? So the first thing he does is he starts listing names. And you would read these and just think, hey, he's just naming names and and doing these things, giving some instructions. But the truth is he's reflecting back on life. He, He draws a comparison between two people. The first one is Demas. The first guy is Demas. And he says, Demas, this guy, has deserted me because he loved the world. And, and, and what do we know about Demas in Scripture? If you search for his name in the Bible, you're going to find out the first time he's mentioned, he's going to be mentioned as a fellow worker, a co-worker. Like, he's with me. He's doing, he's on mission with his life. And then the second time he's mentioned, it, he's just mentioned that he was there. Doesn't seem to be a worker so much anymore. And now the third time that we hear about this guy, Demas, we find out that he has actually become a deserter. 
he has left. He's left Paul, he's deserted him. But the difference is not that he left because he had a health condition, not that he left because he was on mission somewhere else. Really, Paul makes a condition and he says this. Why? Why did he do this? He left because he fell in love with the world. Now, this is not the same love of the world that John 3.16 talks about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that was sacrificial for world so that we could be saved. He's not talking about that kind of thing. He's saying he has loved the system of the world. He's loved the things of the world. In fact, he's become a lover of self, a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. He has walked away from his love and his mission work for God because he loved the world more. His behavior eventually caught up with his love for the world. And Demas was with Paul when he wrote Colossians. He was with Paul when he wrote Philemon. But now his downfall was that he loved the world. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to love the world? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it describes it for us. It says this, Do not love the world or anything of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and now he qualifies. What is love for the world? Okay, here's a qualifying. Lust of the flesh. The lust of the what? Everyone help me out here. Love of the eyes and the pride of what? Life, right? Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. In other words, you can't take it with you. It passes away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So Paul begins to describe that Demas is left because he loved the world. John gives us a very good indication of what that looks like. And if you're taking notes today, what does it mean for the person to love the world instead of loving God? First thing in your outline is lust of the flesh. Now, what is that? That's not just simply like carnal desire. What it is is simply a person who is a lover of self and a lover of pleasure. So there are one who can be like so many of us, right? We can be all about ourselves. We can be narcissistic. We love calling other people narcissistic, even though if we might look at our lives, we might be too, right? We want to be all about self. That's why we have selfies. That's why we have social media. We just look at everything that's out there and we compare our love for ourselves against what looks like everybody else's life, right? It's lover of self and a lover of pleasure. As Paul warned in the previous chapter that in the end times, things will get horrible and people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. And we find that self and pleasure are terrible lovers. They don't satisfy. We can't even take it with us. We don't take those memories with us. We don't take the experiences with us. We don't take even our own body with us. And he says, lust of the eyes. Now, this is not just looking and lusting with your eyes like you think of somebody oogling over someone else's body. While that would be certainly in there, it's also this idea of coveting. That anything your eye sees and you want... It might be that promotion that you want. It might be a relationship that you want. It might be a person that you want. It might be a material possession that you want. It may be anything that your eye sees and covets, that they look around and you begin to covet what other people have, what other people do. You want anything your eye sees with the result that you want it more than you want to please God. You know, sometimes it's good for you or I to take a break from social media because it's the eye for both men and women where you compare basically the slideshow of somebody else's life to the documentary, the long, boring documentary of your own life, right? 
and you're saying, mine doesn't seem so exciting. Theirs seems really exciting, and, and I don't look that beautiful, but they look incredibly beautiful, and you begin to see what they have and what they do, and it just seems like they've got it all together and that you don't and that you're frustrated in relationships in your life, but it seems like all the relationships are great. You begin to have less of the eyes, and sometimes it's good to make a break with that for your own joy factor and for your love for the Lord. And 30 says the pride of life. This is trusting possessions and false securities. The issue there is pride, that pride puffs up. And so what happens is we try to puff ourselves up by trusting in possessions, by trusting in false securities. What are you going to take to the grave with you? What material possessions are you going to take to the grave with you? Maybe a suit? I don't think anybody wants that one anymore. Right? Not much. The point is you can't take it with you. Your body's done. The shell that is a rental is done. You can't take it with you. But pride puffs up. What we do is we begin to put our trust and our security in false securities. So I begin to trust money. Money is my security. If I can put just enough money away, then I'll have it made. I'll have the freedoms I want. And I'm going to trust money instead of trusting God. So I become a lover of the world. In fact, I love money more than I love God. I trust money as my source instead of trusting God as my source. And so people will fall in love with money. People will fall in love with false securities. If I could just have this relationship, then that would fulfill me. It would be my soulmate. They would make me secure. And they trust in those things. Other people trust in material possessions. You and I live in a state of fear that our culture preaches fear all the time. You're supposed to be, by the way, afraid of everything. Don't go to the beach. It might have bacteria in the sand. Don't play with a shovel. You might get hurt. I mean, everything preaches fear, right? It just doesn't matter. We're going to say, you know, someday don't sit on fabric chairs because they're just horrible. Like, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know fabric chairs were so bad, right? Everything is, preaches fear. But what do they do? They sell false security. So instead of that, this. Instead of that, this. And all the time we fall in love with the world and the things of the world and the promises of security in the world that really do not satisfy so you look at a guy like Demas, and we begin to watch him fall away from being on mission with God because he simply fell in love with the world. And you might think, well, I'm not really that in love with the world, but I got to tell you the temptation for all of us is to be preoccupied with fun and self and pleasure and popularity and things like you want to be popular with people like you want to be Christian but you don't want to be too Christian because you still want like their approval and to be popular with them you don't want to go too far but in doing so when you put your trust in things and people and fun and experiences what you end up doing is you begin to forfeit the joy of the Lord in your current life right now you're trying to find fulfillment in all those other things but they don't satisfy and what happens is when you forfeit the joy, not only that, you forfeit the, really the, I guess it's the witness, but witness is kind of a weird word. You, you forfeit the relational impact you can have with other people for the cause of Christ. Because you could be fanning into flame the gift that God gave you. You could be growing in your life spiritually. You could be trusting God instead of trusting stuff. And instead of getting on the same trail as everybody else, you begin to fall in love with the world and you're forfeiting this chance to be a relational influencer 
in people's life and have an impact for Christ with it. Why? Because you and I, at times, can love the world in a way that forfeits us representing Jesus. Listen, you've got very, how do you know if you love the world? You've got plenty of time for the world and very little time for God. You'll always make time for the things of the world, but you have very little time for God. It's one of the indicators that lets you and I know that we're in love with the word. Eventually, you're going to follow the things that your heart has been desiring, and you will desert the things of God. So as Paul is sitting here and he's writing, he thinks back to who are some relational disappointments. And one that he thinks of is Demas because he loved the world. But you've got to say, well, wait a minute. Is there hope? I mean, what about, what about me when I first season loved the world? But what about you for a season when you or I have deserted God? What about when we've gotten caught up in all the popularity and all the things of the world and pursuing stuff and all these other things? What about, is there hope for us? Because there are seasons in your life and my life where we have deserted God. Is there hope for us? What I love about what Paul is reflecting on at the end of life here is he contrasts Demas with another guy, and this other guy is called Mark. He's also called in the Bible John Mark. And John Mark, by the way, was also a deserter. But let's look and see what happens here. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, it says this. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called what? Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him. Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here's a fight. Here's a church fight, right? Here's a fight among pastors. Here's a fight among missionaries. And what happens is Paul's saying, listen, here's the guy's track record. He's undependable. And you know what? He's right. He was. But here's Barnabas. You know what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. He's saying, let's give the guy another chance. Well, they disagree. Paul's going track record. Barnabas is going second chance. Let's let them be the people of the second chance and the track record. And they're going to such a fight, sharp disagreement that they're like, that's it. Fine. You go do your thing. I'll do mine. Paul's like, I know I'm right, is what he thinks. But in verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. So he's writing to Timothy, right? And of all the people he could choose, he says this, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. As Paul is on really his deathbed because he'll be martyred, not because of illness at this point. He's saying, bring John Mark, bring Mark who was a deserter and he had a setback, but you know what? He has proved himself. He went with you throughout that missionary journey and Barnabas, I saw him step up to the plate even though he had previously deserted us and he had firsthand experience, Paul did with John Mark helping and he's saying, listen, make sure of all people you bring, Bring him with you. And I think Paul wanted to tell him again to his face, you've been valuable to me in ministry. Because everybody knew they had a fight over him. And he just wanted to do on his deathbed one more thing to say, you know what? You're valuable to me 
in my ministry. And so Paul makes a distinction between Demas, who loved the world and washed out, and John Mark, who deserted them, but eventually came back because he understood grace and what it means to be people of a second chance. And I want to ask you this. Have you believed the lie of the devil that says you're a washout? Or are you going to believe the grace and have an encourager who says you're the people of a second chance? God wants to give you a second chance. There is hope for deserters like you and like me. We can come back to him. Paul's thinking back of this. The people who were disappointments in his life, the people who were successes, and both were deserters, but one showed himself to be a success. And Paul was thinking about that on his deathbed, and so will you. You on your deathbed will think back of the disappointments relationally and the successes, and you will want to strengthen relationships in your life. You will want to have relational maturity sufficient to understand and respect others. First thing you're going to think about, are the disappointments and the successes in people when you're on your deathbed. The second thing you're going to think about when you're on your deathbed that Paul indicates is that you're going to think about your work. You're going to think about your work. See, Paul's like, I'm almost finished, but he, in a sense, had a sense of destiny. I'm not quite finished yet. So what does he do? It's a very weird verse. In fact, this is almost one of those kind of throwaway verses. You would think it's a throwaway verse. It, like, it means almost nothing. There's no application for me. In fact, Back in the day, I went to a Christian university, and every now and then you write, my, write a card to somebody. And at the end of the card, I'd either write a very inappropriate verse from the Bible, because I was like a junior higher in college, and, or I would write a throwaway verse like this, because it just seemed like it was such a ridiculous verse. The person would assume you just put the wrong address, right? And I just thought that was funny. So it was my style of humor. And so he writes this verse. He says this, 2 Timothy 4.13, when you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. You're going, that's just not an encouraging verse. Like, I don't, like, what does that verse even mean? Well, the truth is, his cloak is his outer garment that he would wear over everything. And, and winter's approaching, so he's cognizant that, you know what, I may be in need of that because it's going to get cold. But second, he's saying, bring my scrolls and my parchments. What are those? Those are written works both works he would study and works he would be working on or writing. Paul knows his time is short, but even he, there he's thinking about his work. When my dad was in the hospital with pancreatic cancer, he was a high-powered attorney working in the skyscrapers in downtown Los Angeles and uh, on his deathbed with pancreatic cancer, and I'm sitting in the room with him uh, at that time, and he'd be on pain medication, so he'd be drowsy sometimes, but he would get alert as well, and so he got alert, and he picked up the phone, and he dialed into work to his work voicemail, and he, he makes sure I get a legal pad. Dave, 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 get, get a legal pad, get a pen. I'm sitting there, and he starts to dictate to me his voicemail. Okay, make sure I need to call this person back and I need to follow up on this case. I need to make sure that this case gets transferred to this guy. I need to, and then my dad would, oh. I'd be sitting there like, I have half a sentence, it means nothing, right? And then it, like three minutes later, he'd wake back up, oh, dial it again, listen, okay, okay, well, make sure we do this. And he'd give me like half a sentence, he'd get drowsy again. What's happening? From the time my dad checked in the hospital, the time he died was 21 days. But what was he doing? He was thinking about his work. Is there a connection between what Paul writes here, between what my dad was experiencing, between somebody that you knew who is trying to close, are they just trying to close up loose ends? Or is there something in our heart that says, I'm not finished yet? Maybe there's more to do. 
Maybe I was created for eternity. And maybe my work doesn't stop in the grave, but that there's this part of me that God has wired us for work. Scriptures are clear that later on, we don't just go to heaven and have an eternal sing fest. It's just not that the whole time where you're like, can we sing this song one more time? I don't know. But what happens in heaven is it says that you and I are going to reign with Christ. There's work involved in that. Just as we fan into flame our gift and we serve him here, so in heaven we're going to have a, a forever season of serving God to our joy, to his pleasure. In fact, it says we're going to rule over the angels. How many of you have ever hoped for or prayed that an angel could help you? Right? Yet someday when you get to heaven, God says, I'm going to put you in authority. It's like a mystery that someone who is a human is actually going to rule over the angels. You have work to do and work yet to be done. And this life is a rehearsal, a practice for leveraging the gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has given us that we would be able to continue those in heaven. Boy, if you just squander all your abilities, all your resources, all your money, all your time, all your treasure, all your talents, all your popularity on yourself, and you expect somehow to get to heaven and having been faithful with nothing, be faithful with much? I don't know. Scriptures are pretty clear that sometimes God says, depart from me, wicked, lazy servant. I never knew you. Why? Because maybe you had a conceptual belief in Christ, but you were not a devoted Christ follower. You didn't move from concept to actually obedience. And he might say, I didn't know you. Listen, my heart as a pastor is to do everything I can so that nobody in our church would ever get to the, the pearly gates and the God say, I'm sorry, I just don't know you because so often we were just straight up about how God wants us to live right now for him and move from conceptual faith to active faith. Nothing would break my heart more. And so God's Holy Spirit's drawing you today to think about your work right now and to think about your work later on. Biographer Walter Isaacson, who wrote a Time Magazine article regarding Steve Jobs, uh, he, he wrote this. He recalls Steve Jobs saying, quote, I wanted my kids to know me. I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. In other words, what Steve Jobs is saying is that I've done some great work, and he has. In fact, for a lot of you, you've got some of his great work in your hand, right? He's done some great work. But he's saying, I, I wanted my kids to know that my tasks validated the importance of what I did and why I made sacrifices not to be there for them. And they had the sacrifice of not having their dad around as much as they would have liked. And he's saying the task somehow is going to validate relationship or the neglect of it. And what I want to suggest to you is that God never wants us to elevate our work above family, but our priority is Jesus and our spouse. And if you don't have a spouse, then guess who's your spouse? Jesus. He's your spouse until you have one, okay? So you might be single or might be single again or might be unmarried or might be young, but your priority in life is Jesus, spouse, and everything else. Task doesn't always equate to relationship, and I guarantee you, I've been around the hospital when people are on their deathbed, when they're through that long struggle, and no one has ever, ever said to me, man, I just, I just wish I worked a few more years before I retired. I wish I spent more weeks in the office. 
I wish I could have completed these 10 projects. I wish I could have stuck around to get that promotion or that pat on the back. They never say that. It's always relationship, isn't it? Paul's reflected on relationship. He's also reflected on the work. That there is a work that I'm still about. I'm not finished until I'm done or dead. And I want to remind you, some of you in this room, that you're not finished until you're dead. And God may say, that's great, you've got a great track history in the past, and you've served me so well your life, but almost sometimes I think God wants to come to us and say, but are you walking with me now? What are you doing for me now? How are you leveraging the gifts, the talents, the abilities you have right now for my kingdom? Because you're not done yet. I still have good work for you to do. You'll think about your work. The next thing that you're going to think about when you're on your deathbed is you will think about revenge. You're going to think about revenge. You are. Guarantee it. On your deathbed, you're going to think about revenge. And either you're going to take your bitterness to the grave or you're going to trust God to carry out judgment. It's going to be one of those two things. Either you're going to take this bitterness that you have to the grave or you're going to trust God to carry out the judgment. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he says this as he's writing to Timothy. He's saying, Alexander... The metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Now he's writing to Timothy and saying, Timothy, in the town where you are, Alexander the metal worker is in your town where you're pastoring this church. And you need to know, you remember, you would remember all the horrible things he did. He incited a crowd. He got Paul beat up. I mean, it was just brutal. And he constantly opposed the message. And it almost cost Paul his life. And here he is on his deathbed. He's writing his last words. And maybe if you were writing those last words, you might say, hey, remember Alexander the metal worker. Get the brothers together. Go make a house visit and pay him back, right? You might be thinking like, let's get this guy. Get the black helicopters, fly over, you know, do an airstrike, get a drone, whatever. You might be thinking that. But it's interesting what Paul says. He doesn't minimize the trouble, the oppression, the brutality, and the pain that somebody else caused him. He was straight up about, you remember what he did to me. And then he says this, so interestingly, he said, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. See, the, the issue here that Paul is clear on is this. The issue in your life and my life with people who have wronged us, people who have sinned against us, people who owe us greatly and cannot repay, even if they apologize a million times with what they've done, the issue is who is going to be judge? Are you going to be judge and carry that bitterness with you? And that person is on your hook forever, but they are not off your hook. They, you need to take them off your hook because they have power over you by what they did. And you need to put them on God's hook. What does Paul do? He says, here's what Alexander, the metal worker, how it, the great deal of harm he did to me. He said, but the Lord will repay him for what he's done. He takes him off his own hook and he puts that guy on God's hook. Now listen, he also tells Timothy, you need boundaries in your life. That guy's dangerous. He didn't minimize the danger of this guy. He didn't wash over and just go, oh, he's forgiven. That's what sometimes you think when you forgive that you, you're letting somebody off the hook for what they did. You're not. 
You're taking them off your hook, which is killing you. And you're putting them on God's hook. And you're going to find freedom in doing that when you do that. Listen, who is going to be God in the hurts and the wrongs that were done to you? Are you going to be God? Are you going to be the judge? Are you going to be the jury? Are you going to say, God, I don't trust you to take care of what was done to me, so I'm going to try, and you're going to try in all sorts of passive-aggressive ways to try to cause pain to those who've caused pain to you. You're going to dream about revenge. You're going to say, if I only could have done this, I should have done that. And you're going to go back and rewind all these things that you would like to do. You're going to think about revenge. But in doing so, you're just keeping that pain and that person on your hook. Paul's saying we release it to God's authority, to God's justice, to God's rule. Who is guiltless? Are you guiltless? Have you wronged anybody else? See, when it's us, we want mercy, right? Oh, I wronged you, but please forgive me. But anybody wronged me? Mm. No, I want to hold them to that. Paul does something very interesting. He says this in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, that's as far as it depends on you. Sometimes you might try to live at peace, but they don't want any part of it. Okay, well, you've done your part. Okay? But he goes on and says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for what? God's wrath. Say that with me. For God's wrath. For it is written, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. The question is, are you going to be the judge or are you going to trust the judge? The judge who knows the thoughts and motivations of the heart, the judge who has all the information, the judge whose emotions don't get in the way, but the judge who says, I see it clearly, and yes, they wronged you, and yes, they owe you. But are you going to trust me to be the judge? Are you going to try and take revenge, which in reality you're just keeping their pain and their power on your hook, and the trouble is it's hooking you. You're hooked to them. How do you cut the line? You take them off your hook through forgiveness, and you put them on God's hook. On my phone, I have a a list in my notes. It's called the you owe me list. You know what goes on there? Stuff that I'm feeling brutal about when people have wronged me. So their name goes on there and exactly what they did. And what happens is I start saying, I just be honest with God, they owe me this, they owe me that. And maybe you're thinking of somebody right now, maybe they ripped you off, maybe they harmed you physically, maybe they took advantage of you and stole things from you, whether it was your innocence or your childhood or anything else, and you're thinking of that, you would put them on your you owe me list. And then what I do is this, God, you cancel all my debt. I choose to cancel what they owe. And so here's what happens. I don't feel like it at first. So I'm making an act of the will. That person owes me, and I'm putting it on my list. And when I start feeling bad about something, I come back to that, and I go, God, you canceled all of my debt. Wash me white as snow. You forgave me. I'm going to choose to do that. And guess what happens is at first I make that act of the will, that choice. I choose to cancel their debt. And what happens is over time, my feelings are like the caboose. The train gets in motion, and my feelings catch up. And guess what? When they do, what they've done doesn't have power over me anymore. It's my freedom list. I don't want to carry that. I don't want to be attached with fish hooks and strings to them and what they've done for the rest of my life. 
And I keep that note locked. My wife doesn't even know it's on there. But it's where I do battle with God and cancel debts because life is too short. And I want the joy of the Lord. Listen, I think many Christians render themselves useless by carrying grudges and plotting revenge. Others put themselves literally on their deathbed because of early, because of health-related issues, because of just a lack of forgiveness. The bitterness, the stress, the pain that they are carrying and unwilling to relinquish has driven their health in that same direction, and it's killing them. When you stop expending energy on those who have wronged you, you start having energy to serve the Lord with your life. Let me say that again. When you stop expending all this energy on the people who have wronged you, then you start having energy to serve the Lord with your life. You will fan into flame this gift that God has given you to leverage for his kingdom. But don't sideline yourselves anymore. You're going to think on your deathbed about revenge. There's a very weird thing that happens. This is an ongoing theme in scripture, by the way. Picture with me two angels fighting. An angel fighting a demon, okay? So here we have a picture in scripture. It's in the book of Jude. I don't have time to go into all the theology and all the background of this, but I want to show you a principle that we'll pick from this this passage. It says this, Jude 1.9, but even the archangel, so the good one, right? The archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, the bad one, about the body of Moses, what that means, you're going to have to look it up. Do some homework this week did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here's a created angel created by God, Michael. Here is a fallen angel created by God called Satan who wanted to be like God. He knew he couldn't be God, but he wanted to be like God and his pride got him cast out of heaven. Well, here's Michael going, I was there, I saw it. I remember when you got your butt kicked, right? He's like, I remember when you got cast out of heaven. And in this thing, they're fighting over this issue. And in their fighting, you think that Michael would be like, hey, I'm still on the good side. He would have all the smack talk for days, right? But he doesn't even involve himself. He doesn't puff himself up. He says, quote, the Lord rebuke you. What did he just do? Here's an angel, an archangel. And he doesn't even speak for himself. He's like, the Lord is the judge. He rebukes you. That's what he said to the devil. He didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And I want you to understand that when you stop expending energy on those who have wronged you, you start having energy to serve the Lord with your life. Well, the fourth thing you're going to think about on your deathbed is this. You're going to think about your life experiences and consider if you gave God glory, right? You're going to think about experiences. These are your life experiences. And you're going to consider if you gave God glory. Like, did you just give God glory like, Lord, here's my impossible situation. And God comes through for you. And you forget it was God. And you're like, whew, I'm so glad I got over that. Or did you thank him? Did you give him glory when you can't see it? You're in the impossible situation, but you can't see how it's going to work out yet. Do you give God glory? God, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I'm going to give you glory that even in this painful process, this impossible situation, you are refining and changing me. God, I'm going to give you glory, and I don't know how it's all going to work out yet. Or are you just going to go to self-reliance and just like, I just got to push through this, and I hope it turns out okay. 
is there some connection between giving God glory and then recognizing and receiving his strength? Could it be that there is actually a connection between us glorifying God and then receiving the strength to endure and to make it through? Look at this verse that Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 20. He's talking about Abraham. God had made Abraham a huge promise to be a mighty nation with lots of kids. Abraham didn't have kids, and he was waiting for God to do that. And he was really old. He was 100 years old. His wife was way past childbearing years, right? But this is what he says. He says, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. See, Abraham was giving God glory before he saw how it was all going to work out. What about your situation? What about your struggle that you're going through right now? What about your impossible situation? What about the thing that you're scared of the most right now? You're going to think back at your life experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you're going to say, did I just live my life for my glory and myself? Or did I, even in those troublesome times, even in those difficult circumstances, did I give God glory even when I had no idea what he was doing? I believe there's a connection between giving God glory and receiving strength to endure. Don't miss it. Don't silently hope and pray and never give God glory or thank him. But that you say, God, I thank you that you're going to see me through this. I thank you that you're going to work this out. So Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, right? He, again, releases that. They owed me, should have stuck around, they didn't. May it not be held against them. He's releasing it, right? But then he goes on, he says, But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles, May they might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. By the way, that's not figurative. What were they doing to Christians in first century Rome? Kitty chow, Right? Go fight at the Colosseum, do all these things. He literally is saying, he's not saying like, I kind of got rescued, you know, from difficult circumstances like the lion's mouth. No, he's saying, literally, the Lord rescued me. And the only one who rescued you from the lion's mouth is the Lord, let me tell you. He said, the Lord rescued me, delivered me from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and what? Ever. Amen. You're going to look back at your life and say, did I give God glory? Even when I have no idea how it's going to work out. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to be martyred. I know my time is short. I know it's going to happen. But I'm going to give God glory right now, even though I don't know when that day is. Even though I don't know when that time is going to happen, but I'm going to give God glory forever and ever. In fact, the final rescue from this life will be when this body is no more and he's martyred for Christ, but he goes on and he knows he will be with Christ in heaven forever. He knows it. Do you notice that he's not, he doesn't write here, hey, Timothy, I really, really hope I'm saved. No, Paul's got an assurance 
But that assurance is born after a life that is on fire, a life that is being surrendered every day to Christ. Last thing you and I are going to do on our deathbed is we're going to cherish relationships both near and far. He writes this to Timothy. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. In other words, you're saying, whatever time it is, get here before winter, because I, I don't know if I'm going to make it till then. He says, Eubulus greets you, and so do Putin's, Linus, Charlie Brown, Lucy, and all the rest. Wait a minute. Did your Bible say that? No? All right. It says, Claudia... And all the brothers and sisters, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. What are you going to do on your deathbed? You're going to think about the cherished relationships in your life. And that's what people want at their deathbed. They want people with them. They want the people that they love the most to be there. And let me tell you, there, in our culture, in this world, there are all too often that people die alone. In nursing homes? In their depression, too many people are dying alone. But what they want so desperately, even if they're putting up walls, is they want the people that they cherish those relationships to be with them. And when you're on your deathbed, so are you. And so am I. And we're going to want those relationships, and we're going to think back to them. Listen, I want you, as we've looked at this book, to live a life on fire. I want you and I to live like we're dying now. So that we're living with intentionality so that when we get to that point, we have lived whatever season we've been in, that's behind us. But whatever days we have ahead, that we can live for that time when we can live intentionally so that we can live for what is truly important before you hit your deathbed. So let me ask you a question. Are you ready to die? Or is God calling you to a work today? Maybe God's Holy Spirit has put on your heart an action point, something that you need to do. Maybe something needs to be done today. What needs to be done today to change the course of your life so that you can live a life on fire? Today may be your day that you choose to forgive when you never have. And take that person off your hook and put it on God's. You don't feel like it, but you're going to make it active. Well, God, I choose to forgive. Today may be the day that you give God glory. You say, God, I've been about myself, and I'm going to give you glory for my weaknesses, my disappointments, my setbacks. God, I'm going to give you glory in my impossible situations. Today might be the day to repair a relationship. Today might be the day to continue your work to God's glory or to love God more than you love your work and love the people around you more than it as well. Today might be the day for you to love God with generosity. God, I'm going to honor you with the first. I'm going to love you more than I love money. I'm going to put my trust and my security in you instead of money. In fact, today I'm going to tell my money that I trust God more than I trust it. And you're going to be generous with the Lord. Maybe you're going to love God more than your material possessions, more than your fun and adventures, more than popularity with people. What needs to be done starting today for you to live a life on fire, to live now like you're dying, to live with intentionality. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, I believe that God has called you here today and he's drawing you out of his great love as people of a second chance to say, come to me. 
move from being a conceptual follower of Christ to becoming a one who walks with Jesus, who talks to Jesus, who lives a life where you are in communion and relationship with your Father. And you're going to move from the concept of forgiveness to forgiving. You're going to move from the concept of intentionality to being intentional. And the first way that we do that, the first offering we ever give, is we offer our life to Christ because he gave his life for us. And the only way to be saved, to have our sins washed away, where we owe God and we owe others, the only way to wash that away is to receive the offer of eternal life and the forgiveness of your sins that Jesus paid for on the cross. And if that's you today, you want your sins forgiven, you want your sins washed away, you would like to begin to be introduced to God, to have a relationship with him, then you pray a prayer right where you're seated after me like this. Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That you were in the grave. That you rose to new life because you're God. I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside. Forgive me of all my sin. And wash me white as snow. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.